Thinking Sheep Podcast. Think as you lead. Think harder as you follow. As you follow. As you follow. As you follow. And now, here is our creator and host, Skip Walker. Hello and welcome to the Thinking Sheep Podcast. I am your host, Skip Walker. And today I have a very special guest, Dr. Anthea Butler. Dr. Butler is professor of religion at the University of Pennsylvania and a leading historian and public commentator on religion and politics. She has appeared on networks including CNN, BBC, and MSNBC and has published opinion pieces in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other media outlets. Today we're going to discuss her latest book released in 2021 entitled White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Calling in today from the great state of Pennsylvania, Dr. Anthea Butler, thank you for joining the Thinking Sheep podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm honored to have you and I don't want to waste any time jumping right in. You know, when people write books that are critical of religion or some aspects of religion, there are some who are quick to write these authors off as being angry with God, angry with religion, maybe had a bad experience in church, a bad experience with a pastor. And so now this is their chance to get revenge with the pen. So tell us in your case, what was the inspiration behind you writing this book entitled White Evangelical Racism? You know, this is always a funny part. So so forgive me if I'm a little, as you say, blunt. Um, I think one of the things that people always think about in this book is like, well, how could she write a book like this, right? It's like she must have had some personal bad experiences or whatever. And that's not exactly the case. I went to an evangelical seminary, Fuller. I mean, for the most part, I had a, a, I had a good experience. What I think is more important about this is what I have observed as a scholar and a person who has been a keen observer of religion and politics over the last 20 years. And so what I would say is that what I've seen is that a couple of things. One is that evangelicals like to pretend that they're not racist, but they really are racist in a lot of different ways, both theologically and morally. And then the second part is the way that America responds to that. And and I think that part of the problem we have in this country is that people respond to evangelicals, maybe up to this point, I will say up to Trump, as a, as a, as a moral force that they didn't quite understand and that they thought that they had you know, good intentions for the most part, but those intentions were not good. And those intentions were tinged with a lot of racism. Those intentions were um, you know, imbued with the desire for power. And those intentions were about um, making rules for everybody else, but not for themselves. And so I think that for me is that what drew me into this book and absolutely being sick of the question, why do evangelicals vote for Donald Trump? I mean, it was just like a most ridiculous question I ever had heard. And if people didn't understand it, I think that I could have shown them a 200 plus years reason why they did. <laughs> well, take a moment and define for us evangelicalism. What was it intended to be? And through your research and scholarship, explain what it actually is. You know, what is uh, the ideal and what is the real? Well, I think the ideal for most people is like what George Marston, you know, the big evangelical historian said was anybody who liked Billy Graham. But to take it out of the Billy Graham 
point of view. Evangelicalism was supposed to be about Evangelion, you know, the spreading of the gospel to folks who needed to hear it. And that already had problems in it because, you know, basically you thought that you needed to go spread that to everybody you thought was a heathen, whether they were in Asia, Africa, Latin America, someplace else. And so in its purest form, we could talk about that and we could talk about it theologically through um, things like the Bebbington quadrilateral, what you believe about the cross, what you believe about scripture, what you believe about end times, all those kinds of things. But I think in this particular iteration of evangelicalism, I think what we have to think about evangelicalism as is as a religio-political movement. It is a movement that has aligned itself with the Republican Party. For the most part, it is interested in morality politics. It is interested in having power. And so that's my definition for evangelicalism today. Wow, that's interesting. Well, talk a little bit about the history of evangelicalism and slavery or How was evangelicalism embedded in slavery? Well, that's outlined in the book, but essentially I could just sum it up in one nice little sentence. Look at the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention exists because those were people who were Baptists, who were aligned with Northern Baptists, who left over the issue of slavery. And so when we start to talk about how evangelicalism is embedded in slavery, evangelicals like to tell a story about themselves. Oh, we were abolitionists. We, we wanted people to be free. Oh, you don't want people to be free. Lots of your churches actually wanted to have slaves and held slaves. And so I think, you know, all of these churches, whether we're talking about evangelicals, or I could pick on you all, Episcopalians. <laughs> no doubt. You can do that. You know, I, I mean, let's 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 spread the wealth. I mean, because basically all these churches, Catholics held slaves, Episcopalians did. Absolutely. You know, what what happened with a lot of evangelical churches is that they broke away so that they could be free slaveholders. And we have to look at that when you talk about the largest evangelical denomination being Southern Baptist, and Southern Baptists having this big, very big history being slaveholders, I think we have to understand that Christianity in America has been a, you know, a racist proposition. And that, that may seem hard for people to hear, but it's true. Yes, it's absolutely true. So years ago, I was part of a big white evangelical church, predominantly white evangelical church. And I have to admit, um, after about a year, I looked around, saw a lot of things that I did not like. Um, in leadership, all I saw was white, white, white. Unless, of course, you were in the music department, then you might see black. No, that's where you belong. That's the racial kind of thing. I was like, those black people belong because they need to sing. <laughs> well, with that in mind, what do you want blacks and whites to learn? You know, those blacks and whites that are part of these big, um, predominantly white evangelical churches. What is your message to them, especially blacks? I first want them to understand the history. That's exactly why I wrote the book. They don't know this history. They have been told, you know, some, I wouldn't say falsehoods. They've been sold a bill of goods. Let's put it like that. And I think that's the first thing I want them to understand. I want them to understand this is a much more complicated history than they think. The second thing I want them to understand is that how they've been complicit. And this is this is a hard thing for people to understand is that your participation in these kinds of structures makes you complicit. And I think for black people, they're like, well, I'm not racist, but I'm like, but yeah, but you support the racists. You give them your tithe money. You you attend their meetings. You 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 worship them and watch their TV shows. And so you have to understand where you stand in the midst of that tradition and what have you done to help this racism continue. And then I think the other thing I want people to understand who are in these churches is that it's not it's not helping you. 
it's hurting you. And so, and you're hurting other people because of your belonging to that kind of institution. And so you have to start to think about what kind of thing that you, uh, you have aligned yourself with. And is that anything that represents Jesus Christ? What about the image of the white Jesus for those who are curious and for those who are interested in the history of Christianity in this country? Does your book speak to that image of the white Jesus at all? No, I mean, I wasn't so concerned in this book about imagery as I was about facts. And so let me let me explain what I mean about that. I, I felt like this was about a tight, concise history of what had happened. Obviously, there's a lot to say about, you know, white Jesuses. There's a nice book uh, that's on the same press called The Color of Christ by Paul Harvey and um, uh, Ed Bloom, who talk about that. That's a good book in case you're interested to read about this history of what has happened with this white image of Christ in America. My book was about facts and not about imagery and about, you know, the kinds of imagery. Now, if I think if there's somebody in that book that has a profound imagery, it's Billy Graham, because Billy Graham was the symbol of white Protestantism that went out among the masses around the world. And so he looms large in this book as, you know, sort of a figure that everybody knows for the most part of a certain age. But you also have to understand that he had a big role in how this evangelicalism plays out politically. Yes, which leads me to my next question. Um, talk to me a little bit about Billy Graham, the good, bad, and the ugly. Because as a kid, I remember families in my neighborhood, both black and white, gathering around the TV to hear this man preach. So talk a little bit about Billy Graham. Yeah, I mean, I think the way to understand Billy Graham is that he married politics to evangelicalism and he did it in a deft way by, you know, aligning himself first with, uh, um, you know, Dwight Eisenhower and then, you know, subsequently with Nixon and others to bring evangelicals close to power. And so I think one of the things you need to understand is that Billy Graham isn't always the good guy that people think he is. That's number one. And number two is, is that when you start to think about stories like how he got together with, you know, a bunch of evangelical pastors in Lausanne and in, in 1960 to figure out how to get rid of JFK and get him out the paint so that he wouldn't win. And then when, when that went awry, he pinned that on Norma Vincent Peale. That's in the book. You, you can see that, you know, Billy Graham was also about power. He may have said that saving souls was part of it, but I think his political activities and the way that he behaved was, you know, indicative of what was really important to him. And so while everybody is very much stuck on him being a particular kind of figure in American religious history, I think we also have to rec reckon with him as a political figure who brought a lot of power into the White House vis-a-vis -vis evangelicalism and religion. Wow, interesting. Well, you know, you also talk about another controversial uh, religious icon in that tradition, um, Jerry Falwell. Yeah. And from reading your book, I didn't know that at first Jerry Falwell was against the whole idea of marrying religion and politics, but then that changes. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think people see Jerry Falwell in the iteration of he has was more 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 a majority, but he came from a tradition where people did not think that you should be involved in politics and then became this very political figure in part because of the things that happened in the 1970s. And without giving away the book, if you haven't read it, 
You know, one of the things I think is important to remember is that figures like Jerry Farwell or even, you know, Billy Graham, for that matter, have always been political. They've always aligned themselves politically, whether they said they didn't or not. How so? They were always had political people in their congregations. They always had connections. They always had ways in which they could figure out how to make things better for them and their churches. And, you know, basically we look at Falwell as being part of the moral majority, but actually Falwell's biggest thing was create Liberty University. Oh, yeah. The controversial Liberty University. Yes. Well, you give a definition of white evangelicalism towards the end of your book, and I don't want to give that away. Talk about the denial that often goes on within white evangelicalism. You know, it's very obvious that some of these things are going on concerning race, but yet there's almost like this acute denial. Um, talk about that denial and why Why do you think that is? Well, I think part of it has to do with naivete, you know, the naivete of not wanting to look at, you know, history in the way it is. And so this is why why we have all these battles about CRT and other things right now, because, you know, or the 1619 Project, because people don't want to deal with America's history. That's first of all. Second, that would mean you'd have to do something about it. And half the time, these people don't want to do anything about it. They just want to be with their Jesus and they want to be with their nice congregation. Right. So, you know, why should they have to be the onus be on them to integrate or we just we don't see color. We, we don't see that. We're all the same in Jesus Christ. And it's a theological, you know, I call it a, a theological cop out, because when you once you say that, what that means is, is that you don't have to be concerned with it, because as long as you're Christian, you don't have to be concerned with race. And that's just not the case at all. So I think for those folks who are doing that, it's a combination of things. And that combination of things is very destructive. I see. Well, do you envision this book as a instrument of healing um, through understanding, especially for those whites who do realize that there is a race problem within white evangelicalism, um, but maybe don't know how to get involved to begin to solve some of these issues? Or are you basically prosecuting a case here? making a point. I write this book for healing. I mean, and I, and I think this is really interesting way to put this. I prosecuted a case here and the case to prosecute is that these people don't think that they're racist. Let me show you how they are. The healing has to come in people's congregations and denominations. I cannot, I cannot heal this thing. I can show you this thing. Yeah. My job as a scholar is to tell you what the history is. My job is not as a healer. I'm not a minister. I, you know, I tell people I'm all for healing and all of that stuff, but healing takes work. Understanding takes work. It takes work to write a book like this because you have to have the chops to be able to do it historically. But, you know, that might sound terrible to say that I'm not a healer, but I ask the hard questions. And the, the end of the book is asking some very hard questions to evangelicals. And so I don't think we are at a time right now in this country where we can pussyfoot around, you know, the truth. You said at the beginning that you liked me because I had a lot of, I just didn't have lofty words. And these are not about lofty words. This is about, I'm punching a hole through your door and making you see something. So it is up to others who do this work on a regular basis in their congregations and their schools and their institutions to do that work. I'm here to tell you what is and what has been. I hear that, yes. Well, what about backlash? Have you received any backlash from the media, from 
our white evangelical brothers and sisters um, for writing a book that one could say um, is so critical of them? It's very interesting. You know, some of the reviews have been like, oh, you didn't. Why didn't you talk about black evangelicals? I'm like, did you see that I dedicated the book to a black evangelical? Clearly, you don't know how to read, Um, (laughs) you know. No. And I think part of the reason why is because some evangelicals don't consider me as part of the camp. They are correct. I'm not. Um, Secondarily, um, they haven't wanted to deal with the book. I don't think half of them have read it. You know, if you had somebody like Kristen Kobes Dumais, who's had Jesus and John Wayne, she's squarely in an evangelical tradition. I am not. And she also teaches at a Christian school, Calvin College. She's gotten a lot of flack from other evangelicals because they just can't deal with the masculinity issues that are outlined in her book. But as for me, I've gotten more people asking me questions like, wow, we just didn't know this. This is really bad. This explains a lot to me. So I have not gotten the same kind of backlash. I assume that, you know, Maybe I would if some more of them would read it. But, you know, the people who are reading my book, you know, which I'm grateful for all of them, and there's been a good number, are people who want to understand more about evangelicalism, first of all, as a political action group, because they are, and a lot of, you know, people who are in institutions like seminaries and things like that. And from them, I've gotten really good comments. So, you know, I, it's it's interesting. I I have not, but I also think that, we're at a moment where people understand that evangelicals have poisoned the environment and the political world. And I think that maybe I'm not getting that as much because people actually see evangelicals for what they really are. What about Donald Trump and his role in all of this, especially with 80% of white evangelicals supporting him in 2016? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Trump, you know, the thing about Trump is, is that Trump just helped shut the mirror on everything. It wasn't like this stuff wasn't there before. This is why Trump is not playing a big role in the book, because I didn't need Trump. I mean, that's the honest God truth. I didn't need Trump to tell this story. But, you know, I think now what people should understand is that you got not just Trump, but you have people like Ron DeSantis or, you know, um, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, who's actually Catholic, who are doing these kinds of things in the name of God and, and really just messing up society. I could have written this book about the Catholic Church, too. And talked about the ways in which they've been complicit in all of this, but it would have had a different kind of trajectory because of the pro-life stance. Well, what about the future? What did your research tell you, if anything, about the future of evangelicalism in this country? Man, yep. it's already in the ninth level of hell. So why are we even talking about <laughs> this? You know, I mean, Christian nationalism. Well, I mean, I don't need to say anything else right now. I mean, I think, you know, what what will tell the tale? We're doing this before um, the election in November of 22. I think you should understand that they are really ready to become authoritarians. They would be happy, many of them, if Donald Trump had remained in office. They are going to keep voting this way. They are going to keep legislating bad things. I mean, while we're looking at, you know, the end of row and that states are supposed to decide now they would like to make a nationwide ban on abortion. What will come next? How will they continue to, you know, flip away at democracy? And so I think you should look at them as an anti-democratic group. You should look at them as a group that is prone to authoritarian leadership and that it is an existential problem in America right now. Well, take off your scholar hat for a minute. If you were a pastor, 
of a church, uh, not necessarily an evangelical church, but if you were a pastor of a church, how would you use your book um, to make a difference uh, concerning race relations, concerning uh, understanding uh, the history of racism within Christianity and this country? Would your book be a conversation piece? How would you use it? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely use it as a as a as a book study, you know, a study and you could study alongside scripture with it, I think. I mean, because you could start to read about how people interpret scripture in different ways that got them to this particular point. That's one way I would do it. Maybe another way I would do it is to talk about what this history of racism is in the country and to investigate my own church's, you know, complicity in that, you know, so that they understand the history you know, you're an Episcopal priest. I would do this from, you know, Episcopalianism. I would pair some other things with that. That would be the second thing I would do. And the third thing is I would basically put people in discussion groups and have them, you know, consider the ways that they have been thinking about, you know, other groups of people, why this is not just a black white thing. I think that's really important to point out. I mean, we can think about this in terms of, you know, racism against, other groups, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans, immigrants, all kinds of folks, right? And so I would try to tease out the ways in which that works within my con- my personal congregation. That's that's what I would do. And I think, you know, I would, you know, pastors are people who can confront, but I think also the other thing I would say to a pastor is, is if you started doing this, you might lose a few people and you need to be ready for that. Yes, I agree with that, definitely. Well, in your book, you also talked about the Bible. How was the Bible used or should I say misused in all of this? Proof texting. I mean, people use scriptures all the time, like Philemon and others to justify slavery. They used it to say that black people were inferior. Where you start to talk about the two Genesis story, the two Genesis stories in Genesis of creation. They said that black people were like this first creation that was basically a mistake. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which people use scripture to justify all kinds of things, whether we're talking about sexism, racism, all kind, yeah, just anything, right? And so I think, you know, I'm not a biblical scholar, I'm a historian. So I think it is left up to people who have studied scripture to really begin to, you know, think about the ways in which, you know, how you've read scripture actually leads you down paths that lead you to racism. Yes. Well, you know, as I read your book, I thought, wow, this book is so much about American history, a part of American history that this country needs to confront if this country is going to truly move forward in truth. So are you pleased with how the book is doing so far? We're we're happy enough to where there'll be another version out next year sometime, paperback with with an extra chapter added in. So, yeah, I mean, my press is pleased. I'm pleased. I mean, I think, you know, what I couldn't have predicted, and I think this is really interesting. I couldn't, I, I wrote this book before 1-6. I didn't know that 1-6 was going to happen. That book was already in and, and being printed wow. when 1-6 happened. And so that is a huge thing that, you know, all these things I said manifested themselves at the attack on the Capitol. And so I think it's really important. I mean, first time you see somebody marching through the Capitol with a Confederate flag and all these kinds of things, it just lets you know that the history is not even past. It's it's there with us. Yes, so true. So do you plan on doing more work in the future addressing this specific topic or will you be moving on? 
No, I mean, I think, you know, we'll update the book. We'll add a chapter to it. I mean, my, the work that I do actually is I'm a religious historian of American and African-American religious history. And so what's really important to me is, is a couple of things. One is, you know, I see democracy going down the tubes. And so my concern about that is a, is a very deep concern. And I think for me, that's where I'll be putting some of my energy in for the next things that I do. But I also think what's important is that people, other people have to take up the, the piece for this. I mean, it, you know, when you write a book, it, it, you make your statement, right? And as I said to people, I have said what I have said, and, and that's it, like Popeye, right? But the <laughs> right. other part of it is, is that there's work to be done. And I could help do that work by talking to people about the book and, you know, encouraging people to, you know, deal with their own kind of situations about racism in their congregations or in their workplace or something like that. My job as a scholar and a historian is to get these stories out that people need to hear because they don't know how to process what's happening right now. And so let me put it in a way that everybody could understand that'll hit you in the gut. You know, all of this work, I, I mean, this is what I said when Roe went down. It's like, you all act like you're surprised that this happened. This is what people were working with for over 50 years. This yeah. is what they wanted. And so why are you surprised that they finally got what they wanted? Because they were persistent. And I think the problem for people who are moderates and on the left is that they are not persistent in the pursuits of justice, period, end of story. We were persistent in the pursuit of justice, African-Americans, for civil rights. Civil rights movement has practically crumbled. That You know, if, if things happen differently in November, lots of civil rights are going to be taken away, not just from, you know, people of color, but from gay people, from women, you know, from children. You're not going to have what you had. And so I think that it becomes incumbent upon people to realize what time it is, first of all, and secondarily, what do you do with the knowledge that you have in order to make America more equitable and better and more just, you know, just place, period. And how do we make churches that way? Yes, well, Dr. Butler, I am so thankful that you took the time out to do this interview. I think your book is a game changer. I think uh, it is not only a good book for individuals, but I think it's a great book for the church, no matter what denomination. And so it is my hope that this book will continue to be a conversation piece um, for the church uh, in order for the church to grow, in order for the church to um, confront its past. I think it's a great book and a great tool for that. So thank you again. I think this is important to say at the end of this is that I think this is important to work with churches and I am very busy. I am really, really, really busy. But when I hear about churches, you know, engaged in the book that I want to be able as much as I can be with my schedule to engage because I think it's important for people of faith to understand this story, first of all, and to act on this. People of faith have been doing some other really crazy stuff. And we need people who are going to see the world in a different way and see the gospels in a different way to be able to intervene. Well said. Well, you've been listening to Dr. Anthea Butler, author of White Evangelical Racism. You can read more about Dr. Butler at her website, www.antheabutler.com. That's www.anthea.butler.com. 
You can follow us on Instagram at thinkingsheep1. That's thinkingsheep, the number one. You can follow me personally at www.skipwalkermusic.com or on Instagram at skipwalkermusic. Thinking Sheep Podcast. Think as you lead. Think harder as you follow. As you follow. As you follow.